0: We are your hosts, Selah and Eileen, and today's guest is the one and only Joe Fairless. Most of you have already heard about Joe, but Joe controls over $900 million of real estate with a specific focus on value add multifamily acquisitions. He is the co-founder of Ashcroft Capital and has personally raised over $100 million from private investors for real estate investments. Prior to that, he was the youngest vice president at an award-winning advertising agency in New York City. Joe is also the host of the popular podcast, The Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show, which is the world's longest running daily real estate podcast. And past interviews guests include Barbara Corcoran and Robert Kiyosaki. He is also the author of three popular real estate books, including The Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever, Volumes 1 and 2, and Best Ever Apartment Syndication Book. Today, we will learn about how Joe first got started in real estate and how he built his massive real estate empire please welcome Joe Fairless. How are you doing today, Joe?
1: Oh, I'm wonderful. And what a thorough background. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that and looking forward to our conversation.
0: Thank you. Thank you for joining us as our guest today. Could you kind of walk us through a little bit more about your background and how did you first get started with real estate
1: investing? I first got started by purchasing a single family home in Duncanville, which is south of Dallas. And I was in New York city at the time. I'm from, from Fort Worth, Texas, but I moved from Texas to New York city after I graduated college and I didn't have any money. I actually had, I had less than money. I had negative money, uh, because I had student loans. I had about 20,000 or so dollars worth of student loans after graduating college and I made a salary of $30,000 whenever I graduated in New York City, which doesn't, doesn't go very far for living expenses and also paying down student loan debt. But I worked hard and climbed the corporate ladder relatively quickly, ended up being the youngest vice president of a New York City advertising agency. And along the way, about, what was it, um, five, about four years after I graduated college, I ended up buying a single-family home in Texas, even though I was living in New York City, and it was for $76,000. I bought it because I had put money into a CD, put $1,000 into a CD previously, and they held it hostage for 12 long months. And then I got about, I think, like $19 or $12 in profit. Uh, after 12 months of them holding my $1,000 hostage. And then I got taxed on that money, those those profits. And I was like, there's got to be a better way. I started looking at other investing and I read investing for dummies and I attended conferences or, or seminars, I should say, Rich Dad, Poor Dad seminars. And I learned and I decided to go with real estate so my first house was I bought it where I never visited the home. I had it, uh, my real estate agent do a video of the house, and I just uh, went ahead and did it. And I actually sold that house oh uh, last October for uh, well I made like $120,000 on it. I forget what the final sales price was, but. You know, it, I, I held it from 2009 to October of 2019. So 10 years, I, wow, 10 years I held it and uh, ended up making about $120,000, $25,000 on it.
2: Thank you for sharing that information. When did you discover the multifamily investing?
1: The reason why I sold the house is because on paper I made money because all the, all, all the expenses were less than the income coming in every month. However, when someone would move out, uh, there would be moving make ready costs of you know five thousand dollars or so on average, and that's a sneaky expense a lot of people don't factor in is the make ready cost to get the the home ready to have another tenant in there and if you factor that in, or when I factored it in for my properties, they, they were basically breaking even. It wasn't making much money, if any, if any money. Uh, so I realized that there had to be a better way. There had to be a way to scale my investing so that I could have many people under one roof. And uh, if I did have a vacancy, and it did cost. $5,000 or $3,000 or even $1,000 that would not kill the financial model for my investment. So that's what I did. I I looked at apartments because of that reason. And as a result of looking at apartments, you, you know, if you have a 10 unit property and you have one person move out, you're still at 90% occupancy. If two people move out, you better start paying, pay, paying really close attention to that property because you're at 80%. But still, you, you should be all right at 80%, generally speaking, with a 10-unit property, not with larger units. But when you have uh, a single-family home, someone moves out, you zero know, percent occupancy, and that's Armageddon.
2: When you were as a VP of a marketing company, did you start investing in multifamily altogether while doing the W-2 job?
1: I did not. I was focused on single family homes when I had my W-2 job. I was also teaching a class in New York City about how to invest out of state where the numbers made sense. And I was I was teaching my system for how to do that. And then I realized when it was coming to, it was um, October of 2012, when I think Hurricane Sandy hit New York City. It uh, required us to all work from home, or in my case, a shoebox apartment in the East Village. And I realized at that time, I didn't want to go back. So I, I made a commitment to not go back. Um, much longer and I ended up actually getting fired or let go is how they put it in December of 2012, because we lost a major client Procter and Gamble and about a third of the advertising agency I was working at was let go. But about two weeks prior to me getting let go, I sent out an email to all my family and said, I'm putting in my two weeks notice after the holidays because I'm I'm done with the industry I'm moving on and it actually worked out really well getting let go because I got a severance package when I definitely would not have got a severance package if I had given my 2 weeks notice and then and only then did I start was my did I focus full time on apartment investing however while I had my full time job I was studying to be an apartment investor I was reading all the books I could get my hands on, it is likely that any books, any apartment investing books that were published 2012 and earlier, I've read, or at least I've read parts of them that I currently own because I was just a voracious reader on apartment buildings. I still read a decent amount, but it's just not on apartment buildings exclusively like it was then. So I was studying and I would reach out to the authors of the of the books. And I would, it wasn't a good approach by any means. Now I would take a different approach where I would attempt to add more value to the authors. Whereas before I was just a dumb kid saying, hey, I I read your book, would love to speak to you sometime. (laughs) That's not going to get very, very many responses because the authors are very busy and it wasn't, you know, wasn't thinking about their needs. I was just thinking about my own. But I, I really started being a student full-time on apartment investing and doing it after I left the the W-2 job.
2: Got it. So how did you get that courage to actually put that two weeks notice? And how did you get the confidence that this apartment multifamily investment would be working out for you?
1: I, and, and just to clarify, I never did put in my two weeks notice. I just said I was going to. I have an email to my family. I print it out on my wall in my office. I before I got a chance to put in my two weeks notice, they did a a pretty sizable layoff at my company but it's, but either way, what was like how did I get to the point where i I said this is enough time to time to make a change? It's pretty simple. I recognize that life is very short relatively speaking, and I actually have now a death clock in my office, which sounds incredibly morbid because it is incredibly morbid according to my wife. It's a countdown clock to my 90th birthday. It has days, hours, minutes, and seconds. It's a reminder to live every moment. And if I'm not settled, if I'm not happy with what I'm doing, then I've got to make a change because this is the time to do it, I, I most likely will not have a lot of regret whenever I know I'm about to die. So uh, live, I live accordingly. You know, Steve Jobs talks about when he looked in the mirror and said, if I am unhappy uh, a lot of days in a row with something, then I make a change. I mean, people who don't live that way have a misconception of, life and death, they think they're going to live forever, so they don't make the changes that they need to. And the most uncomfortable changes are usually the ones that need to be made and are the critical, the lead dominoes. So I realized that when I was receiving work to do at my full-time job as a W-2 employee, I realized the emotion I had was being annoyed. I was incredibly annoyed because (laughs) How dare they send me work? Even though I'm a W-2 employee, because I was working on apartment investing and studying that, <laughs> and it's not fair to them, and it wasn't fair to me. So I knew I needed to make a change. And in fact, I'll read you the email. It's very short and sweet. I wrote on November 20th, 2012 to my family. It says, hi, everyone. I've made a decision to leave the advertising agency world. I came, I conquered. Now I don't care at all about it. The only way I won't quit is if my cash out refinance doesn't go through as planned in a couple of weeks. It's scary. I'm going to a very good salary to basically nothing, but I'll be fine. Would appreciate the moral support that make this big change. Can't talk tonight, but I'm free this week if you want to talk. I was at a bar when I wrote it, so I couldn't talk then. <laughs> but <laughs> I I I was yeah, you know, I I was doing it and you know, we, we all have to make those decisions. And unfortunately, a lot of people wait way too long to make that decision. They've wasted a good part of their life just, you know, teetering back and forth when they know in their hearts they should have just proceeded on.
0: Yeah. And with the uh, death clock in your room, that's always a constant reminder that we really do only have a short amount of time on this earth. So we try to make the best out of out of it every day. So <laughs> it's morbid, yep. but I guess it works.
1: <laughs> yep yeah i've i've been told by my wife that i have to rename it to my 90th birthday clock so i'm good with that too but i really know what it's mean. i I really know the intention behind why i had it but i we can sugarcoat it that way
2: so let's go back to the first time when you started the apartment multifamily investing how did you select your market and would you be able to walk us through of how you find your first deal
1: Uh, I selected my market in a way that is not methodical because I was focused on Tulsa, Oklahoma, which I came to that conclusion very methodically. I was looking at population growth. I was looking at diversification. I was looking at some connections that I had. I was looking at uh, a a lot of things that you should look at when you're looking at market but i wasn't getting any traction and there is one aspect to a market that you'll want to pay attention to and that is the amount of inventory there is available to purchase because if it's a wonderful market but there's not a lot of inventory then you're going to have a hard time getting a deal especially if it's your first large deal and i had a i had a an idea in my head that because I owned, at the time, four single-family homes, I would be given a lot of respect by other apartment owners because I was, I was a real estate investor and man, I had four single-family homes and of, cor- you know, of course I was going to be able to pull off the transaction. It was really ignorant of me. Uh, it's completely different. It's a different world and I was not getting the traction in Tulsa, Oklahoma and then i was introduced to a broker who was based in cincinnati ohio and that broker had a deal and that deal was could have creative financing specifically a master lease so i thought i never considered cincinnati ohio but let me take a look so then i looked at Cincinnati and looked at it through the same filters that I did at Tulsa and I was basically came to the conclusion that flow and steady wins the race in Cincinnati. It's not a dynamic market. It's certainly not going to get the rent bumps that Dallas, Fort Worth, Orlando, Tampa, those markets are Denver are getting. But it's also a market that people Really don't leave for the most part, it's basically just a flatline population. So, I decided to pursue that deal, and that's the first deal I ended up closing.
2: Awesome! Would you be able to tell us uh, the specifics of the first deal?
1: Sure, the first deal was the worst deal I've ever done, so that will be interesting to, to certainly learn from. It lost money, I actually. Law, so it we bought it. We guess technically, I didn't buy it. I gained control over it because it was a master lease with option to purchase. So with a master lease with option to purchase, that means you are controlling all the operations, you get all the income, but you also have to pay all the expenses, including debt service. and in exchange, you give the group that currently owns it a down payment of some sort, which is you know, negotiated. And then you agree upon a price at a later date in which you're going to buy it. Uh, and the whole concept for how the master lease would, would work is that you buy a property that is distressed or you just buy a property and you cash flow and then you sell, you exercise that option to purchase at a later date when it's worth much more than what it is currently. Because if you, say, put it under contract, under a mass release for a million dollars and you say, okay, I'm going to buy this for a million dollars in three years. I've just got to do some work to it. And then... In three years, it's worth $3 million. Well, you, you're buying it for one, but it's worth three. So hallelujah, you came up $2 million ahead. So it's great for distressed properties. The problem that the mistake I made, one of the many mistakes I made on that deal, is I didn't recognize that it was a distressed property. The owner mentioned that it was in 95, 90, 98, forget what he said, almost 100% occupied. So I thought, oh, this is great. But that's when I learned the hard lesson of the difference between physical and economic occupancy, physical occupancy, people living there, economic people paying to live there. And unless you have a really good uh, team that is auditing the financials, it can be challenging depending on what the seller does with their numbers to make that distinction I now know how to do that, but on that first deal, I didn't, and it was actually a, more of a distressed property. I think in the first couple of months, we were collecting around 70% of what we were supposed to collect. There's a pandemic right now going on, and we're collecting more than that on every one of the deals that I'm in. So <laughs> it, it, was, it was clearly a distressed property at the time. So we put it under contract for, uh, I think it was 6.3 million, I want to say. Numbers are a little fuzzy. I know I ended up losing about a million, and I paid back my investors plus 14% annualized return out of my own pocket over the course of about a little under two years. So I, I created investors for life as a result of that, got a thank you note, handwritten two pages from one investor got Ruth Chris gift cards from another investor. You know, it's also interesting that I've interviewed people who have had a deal like that completely go south and they lost investor money and they, they don't pay it back. And it's just one deal. And I just don't understand that concept or that philosophy. It just doesn't compute for me. So anyway, yeah, that, that, the couple of lessons that I learned, one was the physical versus economic occupancy. Another is when you do a master lease with option to purchase, you definitely want to make sure that the lender has approved in writing of that agreement. Fortunately, I waited to close on the master lease until the lender approved it in writing, but it was very awkward going to the closing table with these older individuals, much more seasoned individuals. And it was just me. And I had my attorney from Texas on the phone and I was going into the closing uh, room telling them that we weren't going to be able to close because we didn't get the approval. It was a a tough spot because they're all expecting to close. And I just learned that, hey, we should probably get this information. So you can avoid some awkward moments if you uh, know that in advance.
0: It seemed like that first deal, you learned a ton of things and that was like a a hard hit in the face by losing money, but you were able to preserve capital, which is the most important thing when we're working with the the investors. As you were going through the growing pains of that first deal, how did you get that motivation to continue to move forward? Like instead of of saying, oh, I lost all this money, Um, I'm not going to be making anything and getting into that like depressed mindset... How did you continue moving forward and building up to where you are today?
1: Personal development, focused on listening to YouTube videos on personal development, affirmations, reading a lot of books. Tony Robbins talks about how life happens for us, not to us. And having that approach, you know, what's happening right now is happening for my growth. And I'm going to focus harder on myself, working harder on myself than I do any deal or any job. And I know when you do that through my studying that I've done on personal development, things are gonna work out in the long run. And yeah, I, I thought, what would a billionaire do? How would a billionaire approach this? Would a billionaire cut any corners or, you know, not pay vendors or something like that? Or would a billionaire who is morally sound? take care of everyone and then know that by taking care of everyone, you're going to be taken care of as well. And I think that's the key. I I don't think, I I think 99% of the people who had a first deal, a large deal like I had would not be in the position I'm in. And it's because 99% of the people don't focus on personal development as much as I do.
2: That's great. So for that first deal, did you do everything by yourself for that first deal? Yep. I was the only general partner. Wow. That was impressive. Uh, When did you realize that you actually need a partner? When? I realized whenever things weren't working out.
1: (laughs) And I realized that I was swimming with sharks and I was a a good swimmer, but I I needed someone else to swim with me. Who had some experience that you know I didn't have. You know, there's components to the business that we have to be really, really good at in order to excel at a high level. And I knew that I had some of the skill sets required, but not all of them. So I either needed to hire, which I didn't have any money to hire, or partner, which I ended up doing. And that's it's worked out, you know, very well through the partnership and. I certainly would not be where I'm personally at today, and our investors wouldn't be where they're at if I didn't partner and the beauty of partnerships and the key to partnerships is focusing on your strengths because when you focus on your strengths and everyone does what they're really good at, then things things work out.
2: That's great. What is your next focus? The focus is on performing on our current
1: portfolio that's the primary focus always has. And always will be.
2: So if someone wanted to get started in real estate in today's environment, do you think it's a good time and what advice would you give to them? Anytime's
1: a good time to buy cash flowing properties that you can renovate, increase the rent, increase the value, and decide what you want to do with it, refinance or, or sell. So yes, as far as what to do, read a bunch of books, listen to podcasts like this.
2: What is one thing that sets the successful people apart in the real estate business?
1: Consistent action and executing on that consistent action on a daily basis. I've done a podcast over two thousand days in a row. I personally don't do an interview two thousand. Uh, you know, every day I batch them, and now I don't do as many. I have a co-host who does them, Theo Hicks, but I did the first like fifteen hundred or something. So, you know, most people wouldn't do consistent action on a daily basis like that. But those who do, and there have been others who have, they get the
2: results. What has been the highlight of your real estate career?
1: Coming back from the first deal and and coming back really strong, even stronger.
2: What tools or techniques have you used to improve the efficiency of your business or personal life?
1: A pointlet to schedule calls, and my assistant, executive assistant, Caitlin. (laughs) She's wonderful and helps make my life a lot easier.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much. And so if the listeners wanted to learn more about you and your story, where can they go to find out more?
2: You go to joefairless.com. Thank you so much for being our guest on the show today, Joe. We really appreciate your time.
1: Yep, my pleasure. And And you can actually even email info, info at JoeFairless.com. And we'll get you a a document on evaluating markets that will be very beneficial to you. So just mention you heard me on this show and you like the evaluating markets document. We'll make sure we get it for you.
0: Awesome. We'll also include that in our show notes too, so everybody can um, easily access it. Sounds good. All right. Thank you so much, Joe. All right. Thanks. Bye. And thank you for listening to our podcast today brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook. How did they do it? Real estate. We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to bonifestcapital.com and fill out the Contact Us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.